The Bike Karma Bicycle Stories podcast is brought to you with support from The Frame and Wheel, helping you turn your cycling items into cash without the hassle. And AD Bikes, the modern face of Ostra Daimler bicycles. Become bike, become AD Bikes. Episode number 68. Hello and welcome to episode 68 of the Bike Karma Bicycle and Cycling Stories podcast. I'm your host, Tom Brown. The mission of the show, as usual, is to bring all kinds of people who love bicycles from all over the world together through good storytelling. Doesn't matter whether you like riding, wrenching, collecting, whether you're a novice or a pro, whether you ride with large groups in a city or by yourself in the desert. If you've ever smiled about a bicycle, you're in the right place. All of our stories, like some bike rides, are no drop, which means we won't leave anybody behind. We won't bury you with technical language or confuse you with name dropping without explaining. Today we talk to a person I very much admire. Please forgive me for gushing a little bit in this segment. From the Park Tool Company, Calvin Jones is a bicycle wizard. And then I ask for your help trying to figure out the feelings of the ride. You have a billion different podcasts you could listen to, and I really appreciate you coming along for the ride on mine. Let's roll out. before the internet, one of the things that was promised was that we'd have unlimited opportunities to educate ourselves, whether it be about literature or the world or how to repair bicycles. And yet, despite all the horrors and headaches that the internet has given us, it has given us those things. Calvin Jones from the Park Tool Company makes what I think are some of the best videos to teach people about how to repair bikes and how bikes work. And they're free. I can't tell you how many times over the last decade I've gotten the help of Calvin and his colleagues right in my basement. It's late at night, all the bike shops are closed, and he is explaining to me how a B-adjust screw works. And while of course they're advertising park tools, I mean I like watching that as well. I don't say it lightly, but I consider him kind of a wizard. Because he really is an excellent teacher, and he knows his stuff about bicycle mechanics. So whether you've never changed a tire before, or you're a professional bicycle mechanic, I promise this story will be pretty easy to follow. And if it turns some people on to going out and finding some of his videos and learning more about how bikes work, even better. So I'm gonna just ask you a couple of weird questions and see how you react. Okay. All right. Are you a wizard? Uh, Am I a wizard? Some people think I'm a wizard. Do you feel like a bicycle wizard? No. I'm always embarrassed by things that I missed, always trying to find new new ways to learn things, so no, I don't, uh, I don't feel like a wizard. Okay, fair enough, but would you mind if I thought of you like a bicycle wizard? <laughs> if I help you, you can help, you can think of me as a wizard. Calvin Jones here, Park Tool Company, St. Paul, Minnesota. 
I admire what you do because you do it so well. A long time ago, when they first told us that there was going to be an internet, and they said, here's all the great things that the internet's going to do for the world, I was hoping, and many of us were hoping, that something like your YouTube videos would be on that internet someday. Mm-hmm. So you literally are one of the bright spots in what the internet's actually accomplished. If we go back only to my young days, there was no way that you could have a little bicycle mechanic inside a little screen helping you in your basement to make any type of repair that you needed to do and and going through step-by-step exactly what was going on. And you do it so well. So I just wanted to give you a tip of the hat. As a teacher, you are spot on. You're anticipating all the hang-ups that I'm going to have you're fully explaining everything. You're showing the best angles and such. I mean, you really, I mean, you're obviously wicked knowledgeable as a bicycle mechanic, but you're also just a great teacher. How did you get that way? Yeah, I don't know. It, uh, I did end up, mid-90s, I remember the internet coming on, and I was told I have to write articles for this internet thing. And we, Park Tool finally got off of AOL out into the wild world of the real internet. So I was real excited because I got a camera that had a three and a half inch drive. I could take it out to to get my JPEGs pictures. That was kind of sad, being excited about having a three and a half inch disc to pull out. It went more and more. Eventually, we we actually, I don't think we need to do this movie thing, but early on, got into bike mechanicing way back in high school. So I think it's been, has it been 50? Yeah. It's pretty much 50 years now, my jobs and first jobs in, in a bike shop. It was a lot of fun then, just you know, working in shops and, and you know, learning and thinking, oh, well, I'm really good. Oh, boy. And every young bike mechanic should think they're really good. You know, it's all you like, like bike mechanics out there, okay, you're good. You know, look in the mirror and say, yeah, I'm good. You have to have a good attitude, but, you know, later on you're going to learn, yeah, maybe you're not so good. And you're going to get some humility. But, uh, you know, went to, went to school, was in Colorado, did some university. That's when I really wanted to start teaching. You know, I took some classes, you know, did some double major. I want to go get a graduate degree in economics because I thought, this teaching is great. I love some of my teachers. I wanted to do what they did, that they, they were inspiring. Also was interesting is I had some teachers that I didn't think they were the the hottest at this particular institution I was at, and I thought, you know, I can do your job. You put me up there. I can do what you're doing. With that, I went down to Texas to try and get a graduate degree and talked to the school that wanted to get residency, so I was going to live for a year. But Texas, for a young man back back then in the 80s, that's a fun place. So that college stuff, just, oh, let's put that to the side. I'll get back to that. And you never do. You never do. You, you, you leave college, you, I'll come back to that. I'll, I'm going to go do some working and go to some races, and I'll, I'll come back to that college stuff later. No, you won't. <laughs> so sure enough, I didn't. It, uh, life just continued on, working at different shops and eventually working for the Olympic Training Center. You know, that aspect of seeing people that, that inspired you, you want to be like them, that's important. And then sometimes also... The other side of the coin, seeing people that, I can do better than that. When the first bike, you'd ask for a story about, you know, one of my early repairs. I got out Hawthorne, you know, running through the ditches in Colorado, just, you know, piling it in. The, we couldn't call it mountain biking, right, because this was before Gary Fisher, so we can't 
can't call it. <laughs> it uh, riding through the ditches and stuff. But that was in junior high, elementary, that got a, uh, a clubman. Parents got me a clubman, right? So I got to bring my trombone to school on the bike rack, and it was it was gold. It was ten speed, drop bars, you know, Weinman center poles, you know, twenty seven inch rims. Not 700C, so it was made for the American market. It uh, cottered cranks. So proud of that bike. Rode and rode, rode to school. And then I noticed the gears stopped working, and I figured out, well, what's, what's going on? You know, diagnosis. The cables were all loose. The the clamp, the down tube clamp, was sliding down the down tube. And my concern was, oh, it was all scratching. Look, it's scratching. So I... It, well, my parents, this bike's not good. I've got to take it back to the bike shop. So they loaded it in the car and drove down to the hardware store, just a big hardware store that had them, and took it in. And you come to the whiny little kid. Oh, here's my bike doesn't work. This is this is scratching you. This isn't good. This is uh, just probably with this bike that you guys need to fix. And the guy looked at me. He looked at the bike and he said, if you put, if you put a Coke can shim under that, it'll fix it. And I looked at him and I thought, I can do this. I, I can do your job. And it never occurred to me then that I was going to end up that. But, yeah. And so what it was is the, the, the bolt was, was loose. And it was a softer metal. It was a Huey, you know, down tube clamp. And the bolt wasn't very tight. It just slid down the tube. And if you look at your better bikes back then, they had a little braze on right under the tube that would stop that. So it's a known problem. This bike didn't, but uh, at least the guy didn't tell me to put a beer shim under it, you know, but I had a lot less respect for him. But, yeah, he was right. You, you, you can do things on a bike. That was the point. It's the point he was making. And sure enough, you know, get, get this kid out of this place. I got work to do. Go, go back home, kid. And I did. And, uh, you know, got that fixed and then got a different bike and a different bike and I don't know, just ended up working in shops. I know that the teaching aspect's always been important. I worked as a coach for a while, and a, a coach, you know, it, it is also a, a teacher. That's right. You know, you don't just say, go do these miles and do this workout. You can do that, but you got... You need to explain what are we doing. This is what we're looking, how we're looking to condition our muscles. This is the, what we're trying to get out of this. Um, so the, the teaching part, I think, has just always been something that's important to me. And the, the visuals, I don't know, I used to haul around a, a camera with me on to a lot of, a lot of my events there, you know, road races, you know, black and white film was cheaper. I would, used to do my own developing way back when. But the coolest camera was an Olympic uh, half frame. They had a Olympus route. It was Olympus half frame. So 36 shot roll, it just takes half of a 35 millimeter. I'm not going to explain to the younger crowd here what that is, <laughs> but you get 72 shots on a roll. So it was basically like a cell phone camera. You could just take pictures all the time. It didn't have to be great resolution, but interesting problems that you would see. Failed cranks. It's not just that a crank failed. Why did it fail? That's the important thing attitude that you see, you know, some racers have and some people have in life that, you know, S happens, right? S word happens, right? In England, you know, S-H-I, shite. That's what they say in the UK. It just happens. Okay, it's true, but you've just told me nothing. 
right? You've come to me and your chain broken. It is what it is, right? There's another one. It is what it is. Of course it is what it is. Everything it is is what it is. You've, you've taught me nothing. I, I want to know why it happened. My goal would actually be a fly on sitting on the chain, right, a half a second before it breaks. Once it breaks, okay, we see you have a broken chain. Were you shifting? Did it quickly come loose? Was it that rivet hardened? What what was it on that chain that made that one link break, right? Or a pedal falling off, or a, even a flat tire, right? So yes, sometimes that thorn has your name on it. Right now, right now, there's a thorn out there, and it has your. It's been waiting for you. And uh, here here you here it comes here comes Tom down the road. Dum, 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 dum. Sure enough, you ride over it. Now you got a flat tire. But you got to find that and know that that was the problem. Right? What can you do to avoid it? You can learn from from anything. That's a type of failure, right? A flat tire or a broken chain, any of that. Learning from that, I think, is analyzing it and understanding what happened so that you know next time, sure it could happen again. Right? You got to get tires on your bike. You got to go ride and. Could be another thorn. Well, now you're thinking tire liners. Maybe you're thinking better tires with a you know, some of that nice casing, the Kevlar casing they can they can put inside, or tubeless, right, with sealant, so on. So the teaching part has been important to me to explain to someone. Another aspect of that I think is it's important for you know, people that want to teach. The live teaching I think is is good, and I, I have some experience with that having tried at the Barnett Bicycle Institute and also being a mechanic and, and working one-on-one with people or in front of people, that's an important thing, not, not just for a performance. And I don't know if you've done podcasts with teachers and stuff. It'd be interesting. To, I'd like to hear, hear from them what they think about it. This change, this YouTube drives me crazy. I'm a science teacher in my day job. Yeah. So I'm a high school yeah. science teacher. Yeah. And i yeah. got to say that a couple of things that really impressed me about you is you were throwing out in one of the interviews I've read, you were throwing out multiple intelligences theory. Yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> in the same yeah. sentence that you're talking about bicycle repair and how to right. improve as a mechanic. I love that because that those are like universal just how to learn. I mean, the, the biggest freedom for me as a teacher that I try to tell my kids is that freedom is getting to a place where you get to pick what you want to learn and learn it. You know, okay. and that's... That's my favorite freedom in life is that I'm a science teacher, but I chose to keep learning about science, but I also chose to learn as much as I could about bikes. Yeah. You know, and while I'm in the basement and or I'm in the garage and I hear, I've been down there, like, especially a few years ago, I'd be down there and I'd be like, I'm going to follow this along and I have a problem that I can't get my head around and I put your video on. And literally, I would say something to myself like, yeah, but what about this while you're talking? And and right after that, you would say something to like, you're probably wondering about that. <laughs> and it's like, that's what really makes me give you a professional nod of approval. You know, like you've got the inside track on teaching as well as the bicycle mechanic stuff because you're anticipating all of those common mistakes and those right. those issues that come up that befuddle us 
when right. it gets with the first time. You know, and that's what I, I know in you as opposed to so many of the other videos out there, just people showing, you know, here's what you do, here's what you do, here's what you do. You're looking for where people could go wrong and stuff, which is supportive. So I really right. appreciate that part of your, right. your work. But the one thing I don't like about YouTube, you watch a YouTube, let's watch it a hundred times. You've seen the same thing a hundred times. And when it's live, you're able to, and it's a cheat to, you'll notice, you can see the confused looks. You can see the nods. You can see the glazy, you know, the eyes just glassing over. Or in labs, you can see something, oh, someone's turning it the wrong way. I didn't explain that correctly. But that in-person thing is such an important basis before you go in front of a camera, right? Because oh, you, you, you can't ask a question, you know, you can type a comment in, in YouTube, and if you're lucky, you know, we, we read our comments. It's, you know, something else. Some My buddies in the bike industry, you know, we talk about you know, YouTubes, and, and the, well, you turn your comments off, don't you? Well, you, you look at some companies, they, they do that. They turn their comments off. And uh, to be honest, yeah, I can see sometimes why they do that, because it's pretty easy for things to go sideways on mm-hmm. the Internet, any Internet, but we don't. We keep track of things and, you know, try and, and if there's comments, we learn, oh, man, next time but we have to get the feedback. But the pandemic world that we've just gone through and the changes and the distance learning and stuff, it's been hard on students, and I think it's hard on, on teachers and on people teaching bike, bike stuff, too. You know, that the world's going to return to normal in, in some, it's a new normal in some sort of way, but getting people that you, you can see them and, and see the the mistakes they're making, and they, they can give you that feedback, again, that you know, why isn't this just working? Good example of that, two videos. One's really, really popular. It's how to adjust to rear derailleur. So we put a lot of work into that. People really, really like it, and some people don't get it at all. But the most important to watch that's different is how a derailleur works. That is, that's more important. You can plot your own adventure. If you understand how something works, then you're going to be able to understand what do these screws do? What is this mechanism here? How can I change this? Rather than a rote learning you know, by recipe, half a cup of uh, sugar, you know, so much, you know, baking powder, blah, blah, blah. It's going to be this exact cake. And, you know, people watching it, their pulleys are going to be worn differently. Their chains are going to be different brands. There's going to be all these subtle differences. They all have the same concept. But if you understand, you know, how something is, is, is working, how to, to adjust it or work on it, you know, it's going to be a lot easier. You're, you're going to get there. So you know, rather than just turn bolt clockwise 90 degrees, next go to B and, you know, rotate. If something doesn't quite happen because there's some other factors, you're going to be lost. As a teacher, one of the things that I learned came as an epiphany to me was that the better teachers that I had had and the better teachers that I had worked with, mm-hmm. things hadn't come easy to them. Mm. So the ones who struggled more actually were better at teaching because they could identify 
with the yeah. students who are having yeah. struggles. That's one of the marks of a good teacher is being able to keep your keep your finger on the pulse of what that first timer is going through. Yeah. Um, we both work with. I, do you still work with high school kids? And, oh yeah. And, so we both work with high school kids, and looking at them, some of them know how to do a lot, and some of them are just basically use the bike and they don't understand when they jump onto it. I try to tell them that changing a flat tire is the equivalent of learning how to tie your shoes. And and they look at me and they're like, no, I, I can tie my shoes. And I'm like, that's imagine if you couldn't tie your own shoes and you had to go to the shoe shop every time you needed to have your shoes tied. And I, and I don't put them down for it. You don't want to put people down for it because some of my adult listeners, they don't know how to change their own tires. They're just getting back into it after a while. How do you teach people that that is so empowering to learn how to do that without discouraging them? Because right. things can go all kinds of sideways that nobody can anticipate. Yeah. So, I mean, do you, you remember changing your first flat tire? It, I remember when I was a kid, when I was six, it was like it was the end of the world to get a flat tire. Yeah. You know, and now yeah. it's like nothing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's, that's good. The high school programs now are around, what I'm working with, basically a NICA program. It's a high school racing league. A lot of kids... They're all going to be different different personalities, and I appreciate what you're saying about it. It's, it is empowering, right? This is the first machine that they've they've had that they, they get on, and, and they're riding their machine. You know, like calling it a machine rather than a or a vehicle. This is your vehicle, and if they they understand how to do that, they are going to feel empowered. Okay, the flip side of that coin is in the modern world, and this is just the nature of of, of racing. And not not all school programs are like this, but there definitely is. I don't want to call it an arms race, but it's things are getting more and more sophisticated. When you have a 12-year-old kid and their parents have got them tubeless tires, it is sometimes a bit much to ask them to change their own. <laughs> so these are not your grandpa's race bikes anymore. Uh, they do have two pedals, they do have handlebars, and they got a couple of wheels, but when you've got through axles and hydraulic brakes and sometimes some sophisticated equipment on on an eighth grader that or ninth grader that's you know getting out there and, and just pounding they pound these things. Listeners that haven't seen any of that high school racing, it's it is really interesting getting these kids involved, making a lifetime for them, having them fall in love with the bike, which is that's kind of how our program started. We wanted the, we wanted that to happen. When you get out of sports in high school, a lot of people never do it again. I used to swim competitively. I never swim competitively now. I jump in the pool and splash around. I never want to swim another lap in my life. <laughs> I'm not. And you don't see people get together. Hey, Joey, let's get together this weekend and we'll we'll pound some football. We'll just tackle each other, and and uh, it doesn't happen so much. But bike riding, yeah, you want to get with your friends when you're done with high school and and, and ride ride your bikes. So hopefully these high school teams, that's what they're they're doing. But boy, those kids get out there and they grind that bike. It's hard riding. They're learning to. They're young, strong. And just lots of miles, and they don't take that good care of them. But uh, it's a really neat program. It's, uh, it's, it's 
it's starting to put out some, some good writers. That's not the real purpose. They're starting to put out some people who I think are, are going to be fit for, for a lifetime and I hope make some friends with each other and then years later they're getting together to go for a ride. Just go for a ride. Olympic medals don't count. The world championships doesn't count. You're getting to go ride with your friends that you had in high school. That's cool. That's really cool. Anyway, that's kind of our goal on, on the program out here. How old were you when you had the club men? Yeah. But, okay, the club men, that's a good one. So it, it must have been junior high, right? Because I had I wanted the bike, I had to walk to school with my trombone, which is a dumb, dumb instrument, right? Because it's big. You want the piccolo. You, you can <laughs> so I was going to put it on the bike rack, and, and uh, I put it sideways, by the way, sideways, because I got a little more room from the cars. That was my thinking, right? I'll get a little more, uh, a little more berth when I had to ride to school. So what the heck? How old is a person in seventh grade? Is that 12? Yeah, you could be 12 or 13. So that would have been 1968, we're going to say. 68, 69 would be the clubman. Yeah. And then uh, had that for a, a few years. Oh, till high school. Yeah, so all through junior high was the clubman. Then 10th grade, I was on the swim team, and my buddy on the swim team said, oh, bikes are so cool. I, uh, you know, I, I ride bikes a lot, and you should get a bike. They're really cool. And I got a bike, and I was sold. It was uh, Andre Berton. Uh, this this French bike, and uh, that was the bike boom era, right? That was um, when there were more bikes than cars being Well, sold. that's when uh, the era, the uh, the oil embargo, the oil embargo, and uh, there was a spike in the number of bikes. I, I had one, you know, not for for commuting, but just for well, no, yeah, sure, I ride road to school and I would ride all around, and it was freedom, right? That's what a lot of bikes are, freedom. And this was in Colorado, front range, and there were some steep canyons that you get to climb. Of course, a young person on a bike, right, you're not going to crash. You're not going to die. There's not going to be a car coming around that corner. So we would come down these descents, serious front range Rocky Mountain descents, and it's fast. You come down those things fast. Yeah, I was lucky to not have a car come around. I'll just cut that inside line a little bit this time because I'm going to have good reactions and I'll just jump out of the way. Well, that was it was stupid, but I got away with it. So then I got a job in a bike shop. So then, you know, I first high school, you know, bike shop, and it was a Schwinn shop, and you know, I thought thought I was good and just got more and more involved. And then, you know, through college, I would work in bike shops as much as I could through college. And then I left college thinking I was going to go get that master's degree because person with the undergraduate in economics, nobody wants you, right? All your economic undergrads, be ready to do something because you got to go on. You got to get your master's and your doctorate to teach. That's what I wanted to do at that time, teach. Again, just life turns funny ways. So as you started working at the bike shops, your dad, I think, was a snap-on truck. Oh, yeah. Yeah, sure. They're still out there. Yeah, they're still out there. They look slicker, though. But dad was a car mechanic, California, and he wanted to go ski in Colorado. He wanted to be a ski bum, right? So this is in the 50s. So packed up my brother 
and me as an infant and his wife and an old fastback and drove out to the Rockies and wanted to work up at Aspen and fix, you know, fix the tow. He was a car mechanic. Oh, I can fix their engine. I can get a job. What he wanted to do was ski, you know. So worked there a while and then wanted a raise, right? Wanted a, oh, God, this is expensive. Aspen in the 50s, it's expensive. Think of it nowadays. And uh, they said, heck no. <laughs> We're not going to give you a raise. You can, uh, there's the door. And so he left. He went down to Glenwood Springs, a little mountain town, and was a car mechanic, and they got to be a stamp on tool dealer. And that's when, you know, and I realized where I, I was alive and where I was around. He had all sorts of parts and stuff in, in the garage fixing his own cars. And, and then we moved to Denver, and, you know, more of the same. But a big part of my childhood was, his garage being literally around the smell of tools and, and cars and V8s. V8s have a particular smell. Not only do they have a sound, there's a particular V8 smell. And a huge box and drawers of bolts and nuts and playing with those fasteners and just taking them apart and sorting them and putting the wrong threads on, on and breaking them. That is a that's really, really big. Okay, tangent. Tangent warning. Oh, and just for people who don't know, the snap-on tools are were like the creme de la creme yeah, right. of the tools in the United States. So you're a right. young kid playing right. with right. some of the best tools ever right. made in America. Yeah. So the tool truck, to me and my brother, it was a toy truck. Right? We weren't allowed to take the toys out, but they're all shiny. So the snap-on dealer owns their own tools. They're an independent business person. They have to drive around to the garages and sell these mechanics tools. And then they, they buy them, and then they get a markup, and everybody's happy. So you could open an account. So right, so Jane down at the, the garage, local garage, is, is buying these tools, but the snap-on dealer will open an account individually with this person. And you want them to buy more and more. My dad had a candy jar. Why would he have a candy jar inside the truck? Because you want the mechanics to come in for the candy and look at the cute Chinese stuff and touch it. And sure, they would buy it. But if their account went bad or if this, this mechanic she lost her job and just left town, my dad had to eat that account. It was his, it was, you know, it was, there was no visa. There was no credit card. You bought on account. And it was, you know, that was all his money that was out there. So anyway, that, that's what raised our, our family. But to us, it, he would drive home, you know, we'd go out and, and play on the inside the truck and with all the, all the tools. Yeah, that, that's what the, the snap-on th- thing is. But what's interesting, what I was saying about the, you know, backing up to my comment about the nuts and bolts and the garage stuff, you know, and, and being around that, I think a huge part for I'm talking about people who want to be a professional mechanic or an engineer, want, want that field, Basic thing has to be the properties of material, and and you're as a science teacher, right? So you're into the. Oh, everyone's talking STEM. Oh, everybody loves the STEM, right? <laughs> STEM list, stuff, science, technology, engineering. But every time I get an opportunity, I want to stick the A in it. I think that is so important. Art. We need STEAM as much as we need STEM, and this is where it comes from. And the, the kids that I mentor at school, they don't. A lot of them don't get this part. When you're a young child, you need art, and a big part of it is playing with materials. You need to shape stuff, cut stuff, grind stuff, 
clay, wood, metal. You need to understand the properties. A good example is the kids that like, my kid did this. They all take clay and they want to build a dinosaur or a dragon. And it's got this skinny, skinny neck and it's out of clay that's a ceramic. Well, guess what, kids? It breaks. That's properties of material. So you have to learn to buttress that neck. If you're going to use that material, you have to learn from, from your failure. That's a huge part of life is you, know, you learn more from failure than your successes. And even at that age, to play with materials and understand how to shape things, understand your medium. Our, our medium as mechanics, steel is still really, really important. Aluminum or aluminum if you're British, and then you know, carbon fiber. Those are our materials. Wood teaches you a lot about carbon fiber. Fabrics is going to teach you about carbon fiber. All of that early childhood stuff, I think, is so, so important. You know, that the art aspect has got to be worked in there, I think, to produce the, the kind of people that we want leading our, our sciences. So that's my plea. Bring in the art. Bring it in early. Later on, we get into all this, this CAD design stuff that, um, oof, too much, too much CAD. Make it. Make it in your hands. Get the, the 3D printers, yes, they have their place, but to get something that's realistic and to know it's going to work and make a difference, it, that hand-making, I, I don't think, can be, can be replaced. So there's a diversion. No, it's a good diversion. Yeah, I mean, I can remember my childhood. The first time I snapped a bolt by yes. tightening it too tight, the confusion that I felt, I ran up to my dad and I said, Dad, I broke this bolt? And he's like, yeah, that happens sometimes. I go, it's metal. How did I break metal? Because I, I was a little kid. I was amazed that I broke metal with my own strength. It felt good, and I felt afterwards that I just remember being confused for that whole rest of the day because my whole worldview had changed. Did, I thought did, that metal was the strongest thing in my little world. Yeah. Did, did your dad yell at you? No, God, no. Excellent. What a good dad. Congratulations, <laughs> son. Yeah. Break it. What, so the, this high school program that, that, that I'm teaching, we've got equipment managers. They're basically mechanics, but I train a group. This year we had eight equipment managers. What they do is they go on rides with the coaches. We break up into pods, so if there's a flat tire, the rider has a helper, the, the mechanic, to get the flat tire so the coach doesn't have to deal with it. They can keep coaching. And we also, on Mondays, have we call Maintenance Monday Madness, where the riders can tune their bikes and, and we help them. The point is, in the springtime, we begin training. I, I train these kids. We go to the uh, the high school inside. We go inside, and uh, we don't even see a bike for a month. We start with material, and we start with nuts and bolts. We measure them, and then we take a drill, and we tap stuff. We put a bolt in, and we ruin it. That basic knowledge and getting that experience of pulling a thread out, I'd rather we do it in a controlled environment and they have that experience than on their buddy's bike, right? So mm -hmm. it's a different thing. It's a, it's, it's a big step for a kid, right? A, a, a young kid like this, uh, you're going to work on other people's bike. That's a big deal. It's a big deal for an adult, right? You're going to mess on your own bike and blah, blah, blah. 
But now we're saying you're responsible for somebody else. That's, that's a big deal. So, yeah, the, the stripping thing is important. That's a good one. On, on one of my first days at my job early on at, uh, at this shop called American Cyclery, really liked the boss. I was like the boss, and I was scared to death of him at the same time. He was he was a god. Complete, he had a flat top, tough looking. I mean, he was just a great guy, but scared him. And I was working on a bike. There's a rear derailleur. It was a Suntour. Suntour derailleur, cable pinch bolt, and I broke it. Why did I break it? Oh, it was a bad bolt. Well, no, it wasn't a bad bolt. Of course, it could have been a bad bolt. Clearly what? Too tight. Too tight. I tightened it too tight. And that's what happens. You know, he came over and gave me the evil eye and got that fixed and stuff. But I, I thought, man, that's uh, that's a lesson. That's a lesson. You can break things, right? So poor is intention is one of my favorite topics. That's why I always begin mentoring with, with that topic. Tension is the important thing. That's the amount of, of stress and, and load, pressure in the threads. And then, you know, that leads, of course, to torque wrenches, which they're an important thing, but they're only a tool. The important thing is to get the right tension in the joint. Right? That's what, getting back to art, steel stretches. That's, the, that's a property of the material, that, that, you know, that modulus of elasticity stuff. It, that's what's important to understand if you overdo it, you would get to the yield point and it breaks. But the tightening, there's definitely a window, and a mechanic needs to hit that window of tightening. And so that, that lesson of not doing that, what if it's under-tightened? Here's another, another story. Much year, years later, I'm a race mechanic. Big deal race mechanic. Working in a pro team. we got this race coming up, and I have a writer. One of our writers is in the top three in this big circuit race, and he's doing really well, and he is our best sprinter. Well, he's clever, he's fast, he knows where to sit. I'm thinking, we've got to win. This is a win in our pocket, and it's perfect. Last lap, the front derailleur, cable pinch bolt, let's go, drops onto the small ring. He gets third. Well, we still podium. He got three out of three. He could have won that race. Oh boy! As soon as I saw that, I knew, I knew what happened. Right? I had worked on that bike. What do you think I did? What do you think I didn't do? It wasn't tight enough. And he, he got back. He knew the problem. He threw the bike, but uh, always remember this: he didn't throw it at me. So he had that kind of respect for me, and I, I appreciate that so much. If I get to see him again, I'm going to tell him I appreciated that. And But it definitely had to be, right, you have to eat your oats. I mounted that derailleur. It was a it was a build, and I was the one that worked on it. That had to be my tension, which is an interesting aspect if I try and impart this to my little mechanics there at school. When you're working on a bike, part of you is going with that rider. Your attention and your judgments are going with this person on their ride. You're now part of the bike. Part of you has just gone into this bike and the part I did not give enough of me to that one bolt. And that that was the source, you know, I've had 
you know, many great fixes. I was I was at a race in Italy, working a race in Italy, and Alexa Graywall was was in this. It was a stage race and it's really mountainous stages. And I'm working on the bikes at night. It's really late, and I squeeze the leverage and look inside, and his brake cable is frayed. His brake cable is fraying. It's cutting apart. And had he gone out the next day in this mountain stage and been pulling hard on those brakes, which you're going to do, and you hit those hairpins hot, and you got to slow down and get around them, I may have saved his life, right? And I was so I put a cable in, and I looked around the garage. I'm so proud. You know who saw me? Nobody. <laughs> Nobody cared. It's your job. You save someone's life. You know what? <laughs> Get to work and get to sleep. You know nobody wants to hear it. You, you think you're a hero, but it, you're just you're just doing you're just doing your job. That's that's what it is. As you're working on a bike, you're trying to, especially like one that I'm going to donate. Yeah. It sounds like you're thinking of the end rider all the time. Sure. You know that. Uh, okay, this next Monday. The whole park tool company is headed to a, uh, we're going to volunteer, they're a big bus, <laughs> a couple of buses over to, it's called Free Bikes for Kids. And it's a big program that take donation bikes and they fix them up. They're going to give them away to kids and they also give them to different communities that want to start bike programs, you know. So it, it, it's a fun day. We're going to go over and it's an assembly line. Bikes get wiped down, checked over, you know, oh, the frame's cracked, boneyard, right, so you know, wheels are completely trashed, boneyard. But if it's, you know, workable, it gets passed up the line. And then eventually it gets the bike fix-it stations. And then you, you have to, to make sure everything's reasonable, that, uh, you know, the bars are tight, the saddle's tight. Right? You know, you have to have to make that those judgments that, you know, every, that, that someone can get on this bike and ride and be okay, right? You, you can't make them safe, but the bike isn't going to hurt them. Right, you know, first do no harm, okay? Don't don't do something stupid, and uh, yeah, you have to think of it like that, you know. And you don't, I'll never see the kids that, that ride this, you know. Maybe I will, but I, I won't. I won't remember. But I, I want to know that something that we've done, and if it's a bad, we get the bike, and it turns out, yeah, this bike's just horrible. It, it it should be pulled, you know. Sometimes you have you have to do that if you're. Working on somebody's bike and it's it's bad, you know, low level or high level. There was a world championship I was at in Australia, and one of our juniors had a cracked frame on a downhill bike. And for your your riders that or your listeners, <laughs> your, yeah, your riders that are listening that haven't seen a downhill race, it's it's a piece of insanity. It's you you, you throw kids up on a bike on a top mountain bike, and it's just screaming death all the way down. They just it's just horrible bumps. You know, if there's a big drop that they can hit, it's for speed. They make them take, do these things for speed, so they're going as pounding these things as much as they can. And we had to pull that bike. I could not let that rider, you know, that was the mechanic's decision. And the old rider, would, he, he came up and, oh, I, I got I to gotta do this. I got to practice. I'll tell you what, I'll just go slow, which is, <laughs> it's, which is a huge punchline. That, no, you're not going to do that. But we... We looked around. There was another team had a spare bike. We got the rider a bike, and they got their ride. Not on their bike, which is really unfortunate. But the type of crack it had, there's no way you could let an athlete that you're responsible for do that, right, in that situation. So 
I don't know that uh, sometimes those those are the calls you you make and you you have to live with them so Yeah. I mean, you've always got people at the head of the class and people who are reluctant within the same classroom. Mm-hmm. And as you, as at the wizard level, encouraging people to learn about and fix some of their own issues, you don't want those people to go above their abilities. That, and at the same time, you're really trying to encourage people to get aware of mechanicals and aware of right. basic repairs that they could do. Right. You got to balance that message constantly. You can't. Yeah. You, you don't want somebody doing something that's way beyond them and making their own bikes unsafe, but you do want somebody to listen to noises, and you want them to be able yeah. to identify where a noise is coming from. So even if they can't handle it, they can go to the, the shop right. and, and give them we're, some good intel. Where we're back back to the thing again of why is it doing? What what's the the bottom line? What why is it making that noise? And you, Truman and I have that here all the time. We have that discussion a lot. That balance of should people getting in into this, and we have to pick carefully on, on, on our topics. And people have to understand, uh, you also have the right to fail. <laughs> and what does that mean? If you're getting into something, you might ruin it. You might ruin that thing, and then you have to buy this new component. And it might be a $150 you know, rear derailleur, right? It might be a new wheel. You know, if, if you if you really get into something and you got in over your head, that's possible, and that's true on anything. Your refrigerator, your microwave. If you get in too far and beyond what you're able to do, you can still get away with it, right? So on, on the bike, there's definitely some some things that you can do. That's that famous hack versus bodge thing that the GCN um, channel does. It. And some things, yeah, you, right, you can, I cut my steering column too short. I can go get a wooden dowel and turn it down and jam it in with some wood glue and put a stem on top of it. Yes, you can. I believe you can do that. Now, do you want your, do you want your mother to ride that? Do you want your friend to ride that? That's kind of the the rule of thumb there. Um, so just because you can do something doesn't mean you you should do something. Um, so yeah, that definitely is a, the balance. So easy things you can get into adjust and understand, and then you know go bit by bit and, and learn more and more. But at at some point, it it's a leap. You're saying, yep, I'm going to go in and I'm I'm going to do this, and if it goes bad then you've learned something. <laughs> Take something away from that. So. It's okay to feel over your head. Uh, yeah. I'm glad you said it's okay to fail. If you change your first tire and it happens to be with a pair of really tight Conti Gator skins, yep. which professionals struggle with for yep. sometimes hours trying to get them on, you know, don't feel bad about it. You know, it, it is a disappointment to not be able to do it yourself, and you have to go drag it off to the shop. But there are some situations you're going to end up in, but you're still going to be further ahead than you were. Absolutely. You're going to have learned something. Yep. And that's what I really enjoy about your channels is you give people the chance to be empowered. 
Right. And if you do end up going to a shop, it's it's still worth it. A good shop should do this. They shouldn't be insulted by this. But then, well, tell me what I did wrong. Tell tell me, oh, well, you actually bought a 700C tire, but you had a 27-inch rim. Or it, or it was just the beads on this are really tight. You know, you need to use soap and water and so on and so on. But you know, it's, it's fair. If you're paying a shop to, to repair, they don't owe you a private lesson, but they do owe you, a, a, you know, some discussion on, you know, was the component right? Was it incompatible? You didn't lubricate it. Uh, it was just simply a, a adjusted poorly. You know, that, that, they, that much they do, they, they, should, they should give you that much. So going back to those early days for just a couple quick questions. You grew up with all these wonderful tools. You had access to some of the best tools in the world. Do you remember your first bicycle-specific tool? Yes. Yep. Cyclo chain tool. And I bought that at uh, the Cinderella Mall, (laughs) back when shopping malls were a thing. And uh, you go past the Orange Julius stand and turn left and... It, uh, that's where I had my undraper town. They had a little, uh, line of French bikes. Yeah, they were out of business by the, by the 80s. They were, they were gone. Um, but yeah, a chain tool that pushes the rivet, pushes the rivet in the chain, and you had to count carefully, right? Because you don't push the rivet all the way out, which every inspiring mechanic learns, because you ain't gonna push it back in. So. Back in the days before quick links. Yep, and then and then you return that same rivet back in when you clean or or shorten your chain, and you had to center it and take the and, and remove the um, the kink, any, any tight link, which is an, a, another good story to modern times. We still have people thinking they can do that. The modernities aren't your grandpa's chains anymore. The old chains did not have a, a peened rivet that you could. You could, you could shove the same rivet out and shove it back in, and it was the same rivet, right? It's a, it's a tight press fit. The new chains have nothing sticking out the side. They are very flush. And for the transition for a while, when people try and take their old paradigm and apply it to the new technology, you've got to stay current. This is a whole other discussion, right? It's, it is steel. It is the same thing, right? It does still contain atoms of, of these particular elements, but it's still new technology. The rivets are basically flush with the side plates. You don't center it back up. When you push a rivet nowadays, you can feel this click. It, it will actually make a click. It's the ring around the rivet head that's breaking. That's that little tick. And you've just made a weak link. Well, you take it out and you get rid of it and you put in a quick link or the Shimano connection rivet, whichever you like, to return it to its normal strength. But the the old days of pushing that rivet back in, in, in the 90s especially, you know, in the early 2000s, we would see that people trying to do the old technique, I'll just reuse that rivet and put it back in and it'll be okay. Nope, <laughs> because that rivet is no longer peened on both sides. It is literally the weak link, and you're you're looking at, at at failure coming right at you, and it's going to happen in the hardest part of the pedal stroke. <laughs> right? It's not going to fail when you're leaning against the wall and get a cup of coffee. It's not just going to go chink and break. It's going to be when you're out of the saddle, pedaling hard, 
it's going to break, and it's going to be ugly. So your friend's going to be there and call 911. What was your favorite bicycle tool of all time? Uh, of all time, boy, that's a fun one. That's a okay. I'm gonna get my box stolen, and I get to pull one tool out of it. Is that what's your, yeah. okay? That, that's that's that's. Or or the one that you used and you just loved every time you picked it up okay. while you were. The one I loved all the time was probably the, the chain pliers, the VAR chain pliers. That would, would disconnect a chain and then use the other end, squeeze it. The pliers would punch it back together. It was really cool. They actually made a titanium version out of Russia for a while. It was really, really cool. It worked well on the old chains. To be honest, it had the lower pin actually swung on an arc. Park Tool had one that was slower that the pin pushed straight, the better tool. I didn't want that. wanted the pliers. That was probably a favorite to use. But the one that got stolen, I would, I would, if I get to take one tool out before the thief runs away, it is my orange-handled Peugeot straight blade screwdriver. It's a little little eighth-inch blade, straight blade, out of my toolbox that I, I got in France. Got it in Marseille, visiting my friend, my friend Jean Pierre, and it's just sentimentally the, the most important thing to me. That that one tool represents France. And, uh, yeah, all the other tools, uh, you know, I'll, I'll replace them eventually. But that one, right, that's, it's the same reason I love that is that I love my old road bike, right? I, I ride a 64-centimeter uh, Reynolds 531 steel frame, a Tongi. It was <laughs> a frame, little frame maker out of, out of Boston, Somerset, Massachusetts, actually. And uh, I get on that bike. And, every, and I look down at my bike, and I think of my friends, right? I think of my, my, my buddies and the equipment that I got and, you know, where I got these uh, down-tube shifters and where I got these carbon fiber tubular rims, right? I have an old clunky bike. It's got carbon fiber tubular rims, lighter than most anything out there. Forget your tubeless. You want tubular. Those are the, the true, true top of the... Uh, the pyramid. So, anyway. What was your weirdest repair ever? Oh. <laughs> okay, okay. Wasn't even a bike. Can I do it? It was a bike ride, but it wasn't a bike. Can I do that? Sure. Okay. So, a bunch of us are riding single track in Colorado. We're going up from Gold Camp Road. Just this is really steep climbs, really hard. And I'm generally the caboose, right? I'm generally last. I, I got heavy bikes, working really hard. And these guys, they pass these runners going down, and then two or three of them, runners get out of the way, and then they get back on the trail. And, of course, the runners, they're this older, retired couple, right? And um, out in the sun, Colorado, and the guy's complaining about the bikers. And then, well, then there's me. <laughs> he didn't know there was one more. So I hear him complaining, like, those bikers should get get up. That's what are they doing up here? Rah, rah, rah. And then there's me. So they go down. and Okay. So the guys turn around at the top, and they zoom down, and, you know, and then saying, here, here comes me. And there's the couple again. They're still on the trail. And this poor lady now is holding her shirt down below her waist and running with her, her shorts in her hand. 
And I think, what is going on here? What can I do? I mean, I can't go anywhere else. I can't. You turn around, the top is basically Pike's Peak. I can't go the other. I have to pass this lady, and I feel so sorry for her. So she's trying to be modest, and <laughs> her shirt pulled down low, right, like a little mini skirt. So I ride by her. This poor lady, I, what can I do? So there's this yucca plant there, and it's, you know, I've seen this done. It, it actually works. So you cut off a slice of the yucca, strip off some of the strands. You've got a needle and thread. If you have a yucca plant, you've got a needle and thread. What had happened to her, and because she told me that riding by, she told me, oh, my elastic is all gone in my running shorts. And so I said, here. I did my shirt first just to show her the concept. Ran some threads through. You can cinch it up there. You can You can take a stitch. Here's some needle and thread. Good luck. And I left. Just immediately left and left her. So, did she fix it? Was that a repair? Right? I don't know. I, I'm not going to report that she showed, showed up her her, uh, her running shorts. But that was, uh, I don't know, that was the, you know, the oddest one. You know, the, the oddest one. You know, bike-wise, God, I don't know. That's putting me on, on the spot. It's always the last one you did, right? That's... That's, that's a good one. I tried to get uh, a guy to talk to me down in Tucson. One of the weirdest repairs he ever had, he popped open the bottom bracket, and inside was a lizard skeleton. Cool. I mean, I had heard about bugs and invertebrates and stuff like that, but a hey, vertebrate well, inside look, your bottom bracket. Hey, Mr. Scientist, you got a bug in there, you got a food chain. <laughs> Right? <laughs> yeah. No, that's that's cool. Well, Calvin Jones, thank you so much for talking to us and sharing some stories. If people want to go check out some of your wonderful lessons or they want to see you on social media, where would they go? Well, yeah, a couple of places. We're, we're on YouTube. At, uh, it's the Park Tool channel. Search for the Park Tool channel. There are definitely imitators out there. <laughs> but the Park Tool channel gets you us. Go to our website in the repair help area. There's there's more articles, too, right? So not, not every single repair on the bike. We, we've, you know, we're looking to cover the whole bike you know, eventually. There's also some articles. That's something that we used to do in the old days. It's, it's you know, deciphering little hieroglyphics. But you, YouTube is the default nowadays. We have two styles of, of, of YouTubes. We have what we call Tech Tuesday, where we do good things, but we have fun, right? We're going to do a concept, but we're going we're gonna to have fun with it. It's, it's, you know, we don't consider it that, that serious. Then the repair help. And the repair help is... You know, we're going to show you how to bleed a brake or lace a wheel, you know. So in a, in a Tech Tuesday, we may take a rock and smash the wheel and talk about fixing it. In a repair help, we're not going to do that. But in the Tech Tuesday, you know, we're trying to teach a lesson or, or, or make a point. So there's, you know, understand there's two, two different ones there. So, but anyway, those, those, we're on Facebook, I guess, and we're on, we're on TikTok. So anyway, we do like to hear from people and what, you know, what's interesting to them and, you know, what, what would, would help them, you know, what would make their uh, their lives better. It helps us as, as a company to know what, what, uh, what people want to do. So, you know, that's always always good for us, us to get, get a hold of us. Anyway. 
So I'm not really a sports guy, but I know that if you took a lifelong Red Sox fan and you brought them to talk to people in the organization, I bet they'd have some ideas on how to do things better. I don't really have ideas on how to do things better, but I did need to ask him about why they don't make certain tools anymore, because some of us out here working on old bikes, we love some of the old tools a lot, and we wish that we could get them a little easier sometimes. So, of course, I could not resist asking him about a couple of my favorite tools and what happened to them. And I heard in his voice that he must get asked this all the time, along with all the other people in the Park Tool Company. But he explained it to me very graciously and kindly. The internal seat post clamp. Yeah. yeah. Why don't they make that anymore? So the park tool company uh, is a big company, and we make a lot of tools. And uh, being a scientist, you'll understand uh, the, the principle of, of, of Darwin. Okay, natural selection. It doesn't mean you're the fittest of the. No, it's not the fittest. It's the fit enough. It's the fit enough, right? Dude, not everybody has to be a lion to survive, but you got to get by. So sometimes in the tool world, uh, uh, sales just dive, and uh, you need to cull the herd. You need to cull the herd, and uh, the, there were some problems with the with the internal seat clamp. Uh, it did work well when, when, it, when it worked well. Seat tubes now are really, really wide um, uh, from the skinniest 22.2, about 7 eighths of an inch, you know, all the way up, you know, 35 mil millimeters on, on some big, big posts. And getting something to cover all that and be reliable um, and affordable just wasn't going to happen. And, so uh, I, I got one. I yeah. got one. And I, I baby it. But um, you know what it's amazing for? What? It's kids' bikes. Yes, sure. Is putting a kid's bike into a stand, I have done some, you know, people are always giving me, like, here's my old kid's bike, and I fix it up and give it to Goodwill or Salvation yeah. Army. But to get that bike into the stand is the seat post is too short. You just take it out. You put that internal seat post stamp in. It's it held up helps. beautifully. But if you market it as that, maybe you'd sell a, a million of them. A million, a million, a million times. Let me write that down. I have to get down here for an order of a million. Everybody's problem in the world is the biggest problem. Yeah, you know, know how many cottered crank tools we would sell if we brought that back? I think the guy said a million. Wow. A million. I did you know the dance and I got mine at a swap you, meet. Right, right. Yeah. You know what a cottered, cottered crank is? Oh, yeah. Oh, well, that, that's right. So the... Uh, um, yeah, I don't know if it's going to be a million. So, um, yeah. I, I bought my cottered crank tool from a person, and I did a dance because it took yeah. me so long to find one, and yeah. I got one for forty five dollars at they a swap. They were great beer. tools because they drove that pin straight. They were better than the VAR tool. The, 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 it was fantastic. Sales just diminished, right? Yeah. And then, I understand. Well, with, with seat posts droppers. There ain't nobody pulling a post to work on a bike when it's a dropper. Yeah. So, I know, all this new technology ruins things, so. People, people get mad, oh, you guys love it when there's new standards. Well, if it's truly a standard, but if it's a niche, and there's just one bike using this one thing, it, it becomes a nuisance, not a, not a, 
not a product. So, anyway. When you get a chance to talk to one of the tops in their fields, I mean, he's probably one of the best bicycle mechanics in the world. And you ask him, will you do an ABC quick check PSA? And he says, oh, I'm going to change it to the letter M. You just let him go with it. So in lieu of the ABC quick check, we're going to do the same check today, but think about it like an M. So here's Calvin Jones, master mechanic from Park Tools, doing our public service announcement on how to check your bike before you ride. Hello, Calvin Jones here. I want to do a check with you that some people call the ABC. Okay, can I change this up a little bit? Forget the ABC. Think of the letter M. Let's start at the bottom right M. That's your front wheel. Is that skewer tight? Come up the line. The M goes up to the handlebars between your tire. Give it a squeeze. Is there air in it? The M at the top there, now we're at the bars, that's the peak there, squeeze the brakes, wiggle the bars, that's good. The M goes down to the bottom bracket, your cranks. Is your chain oiled, right? Is your crank tight? Is that good? The chain's all lubed? Where does the M go? Up again, we're drawing the letter M to the saddle. Wiggle it, is it tight? Is it straight? That's great. The M finishes by going down to the rear hub. Is that skewer tight? Oh, hey, you passed the tire. Did you squeeze it? That's your M. From the hub up, then down, then up, and then down. That is going to save you check each time. Have a fun ride with Bike Karma. Calvin Jones, out. Hello and welcome to the mid-roll thank yous for episode 68. This is the part of the show where we just give thanks for our allies, friends, supporters, and people who are nice and helped us out. So stickers is one of the ways that we organically, honestly promote the show by putting them into non-obnoxious places where there may be other stickers already. People see the stickers and then they say, hey, what's that about? Or you might have a sticker on your water bottle and your friend says, what's that? I get emails all the time from people who say things like, I saw your sticker on a bike path. And then I learned about the show that way. For helping out with the sticker army, the responsible sticker army, we have Aaron Smith and Paul Daniello from Oregon. Thank you for helping out with the sticker army and Mike Schmidt from Rhode Island. Thank you very much for the Rhode Island sticker army help. If you want stickers, just email me and they're free and I'll send you a bunch depending on how many you think you might want to use. If you have a cycling club, I can send you enough for the entire club. If you have a store or a shop or someplace that you know of where you could visibly put one, I could send you a slightly bigger one that might go in a shop window. Just let me know what you want. I'd rather give you all stickers than give Facebook money for maybe showing ads to people. I mean, they're a computer company and they can't tell you exactly how many people they're going to show your ad to. Anyway, following anywhere really helps as well. For following on Podbean, thank you very much to PBG5A05A8IJ5S. 
It's a confusing name, but I appreciate you. And a lot of love. That's that's easier to say. Thank you for both of that. Uh, nice reviews on Apple and elsewhere. We have Roca from Arizona. Thank you so much for the nice review. Um, One Girl, Two Wheels, Some Dude 87, and Train Man 1957. Leaving reviews is so helpful. You have no idea. And it makes me feel great and keeps me going when I feel like just burying my head in the sand after an extra long session of editing on the computer. Thank you very much for Chris at Com6T4 on Instagram. Instagram, trying out Bold Shield on his rear rack after hearing the last episode where Bo Shield gave me some support for mentioning my being a fan of them. So I appreciate that and I appreciate Chris for following and trying it out. So there's a lot of ways to help out the show without paying anything. And those are leaving reviews, following on social media, checking out the website, sharing the show with people who you think might want to listen to it. All of those things really help us to grow organically and over the long haul. And I am in it for the long game. But if you would like to help pay for the cost of the show, you can go to Patreon and join a small but really helpful group of people who can give as little as a dollar a month to help me to pay for the cost of the show. Things like file hosting and making stickers and postage and equipment as it breaks. So new Patreons. Uh, we have George Shearer, Bill Smith, Ali, and Michelle Pack. Thank you all for helping me pay for the cost of the show. Just head over to patreon.com and search up By Karma Podcast and you should be able to find us. And no mid-roll thank you would be complete without a mention to Fred Thomas, who's been a huge supporter of the show since way back. Fred Thomas is a bicycle-loving guy who has several projects and businesses, one of which is the Frame and Wheel, where he specializes in selling your used bicycles, equipment, and parts, giving you more time, space, and cash. He has his own YouTube channel, All Things Bike, where he talks about all kinds of bike stuff, kind of like us. I definitely consider him a like-minded individual, but one of the really exciting things that happened for him is he used to race AD bikes back in the day. He was looking around and he found out that the name of AD bikes was for sale and he started his own bike company. He brought his favorite brand back to life. So he runs the modern version of AD bikes. For a long time he's been doing carbon bikes with the primary advantage that you can build them up however you want and you can spec them out however you want. He's like some of those more expensive boutique-y type bike stores where you can kind of pick what you want and customize it, but he is selling really good value bikes that are not that much more than just what you'd buy off the shelf, sometimes less. He and I talked for a long time about having some steel options, which he really loves. You know, carbon's great and steel's great too. They both have their perks. And then through the pandemic, it took a long time to figure it out, but he's got this really cool steel offering now too. And that's what he's going to tell you about while he's biking around. So take it away, Fred. Hey, everybody. It's Fred Thomas with some quick facts about the new Keith Steel Limited gravel bike. First, made very well in the USA using Columbus Steel Oversized tubes. It has very wide tire clearances, 700 by 43 millimeters or 650 by 2.1 inches, which is 53 millimeters. T47 bottom bracket, Paragon through axle dropout, the distinctive Styria green finish with the down to AD logo. It's in production now. It's available in six sizes, and you can reserve yours today with a deposit by going to adbikes.com, and you will be ready for the early spring gravel races. Become bike. Become AD bike. 
Thanks, Fred. To find out more about either the steel bikes or the carbon bikes from AD Bikes, you can look up AD Bikes on any social media or you can find them on the links on our website. Thank you too for listening. Now back to the show. Hands down, the coolest thing about doing this show is being able to relate to people. When the world's running you down and you hear other people who feel the same way you do about things, positive things, it's very invigorating. So this short segment is more about us. I mean, it's so nice when you hear that other people ride clipped in and flats. There are people who do mountain and road bike. So I'm just going to throw this out there to see if there's anybody else who feels this way too. So when I was a kid, we had a really large yard and I was responsible for cutting the grass. They prepped me really well for this by giving me a toy lawnmower back before I could even use the real one. So when I say large yard, I mean like it would take three hours to cut the grass each time. That's with a walk behind mower. If you can imagine this large yard with wood surrounding it and a garden and different sections and I divide this up into different polygons in my head. So there'd be this section and I'd go and I'd do the perimeter and then I'd gradually fill it in like it was a coloring book. Kind of like what I do with my bike rides. Sometimes I would run tracks like they do when they're searching for a sunken ship which they call mowing the lawn. A couple really crazy times, I started in the middle and worked my way outwards in a giant spiral pattern, but each part of the yard had its own vibe. The lighting and the shadows and stuff like that would change, but it would always have its own vibe to it. In the way back where you get close to the swamp, the dirt was very different and there would be a different smell to the area, a different mood. The side yard next to the neighbor's house had all kinds of wrecked cars and lawn furniture and all these old crafty style windmills. And maybe because I did it so many times over my life, I found that these vibes for each area were pretty consistent. Flash forward ahead to now, when I go for a bike ride in an area that I know really well, it seems to have its own vibe too. And my question for the group is, is that vibe a thing that I'm picking up on or a thing that I'm putting onto it or a mixture of both. So there are some places where you go ride your bike, they're happy and pleasant and they're always happy and pleasant. They might be cold, they might be colorless in the winter, but they are consistent. Then there's other places along a trail, especially long trails like rails to trails and such, where you get kind of a creepy feeling each time you go through them. So I've tried sometimes rolling through an area that I know really well and just trying to block any memory that I have to see if that vibe is still there. And then if you separate things into there's good feeling areas to go riding and then there's just not as good feeling areas to go riding. Do you have different moods that you get in where you're like, it's a certain day you want to go for a ride and you just flip through all those emotions of where you'd like to ride? Is that a part of your decision making process? When you're out riding and you can make a left or a right, are you consciously thinking about which way feels better to go at that moment? Have you ever had a place change its vibe? So instead of just one only child talking about this on his podcast, I'm going to open this one up to the group. If as you're riding around, whether it's on mountain bikes or trail bikes or gravel grinding, do different areas feel different to you as you roll through them? Next question, do you think that's you or the area and you're picking up on how the area actually is? 
Or do you think it's some internal emotion that's triggered from the area? Or perhaps do you think it's a combination of both? So how do we make this a complete circle? How do we make this a two-way conversation? Well, you can call the Bike Karma Studio Hotline at 860-740-2813. That's 860-740-2813. If you'd like to respond to this topic via voicemail that I can then include in the show, Call that number and then leave your full name, where you're from, and that I have permission to use your voice and story on the show. And then right after that, just introduce yourself however you'd like to, to be on air. You might use your first and last names or just your first name. You might say where you're from or not, whatever you feel comfortable with, and then answer those questions. I'll see what I get for it and I'll try and put it together in one of the episodes coming up this spring. So please and thank you for considering. Once again, that number is 860-740-2813. So let's see if riding around on certain trails has different moods to it, or if riding on a certain neighborhood has a different vibe to it, or is this all in my head? Let's find out. Please and thank you in advance, and here's your chance to get onto the show. Hope to hear from you. Thank you very much for coming along with me on the ride of another episode of the Bike Karma Bicycle and Cycling Stories podcast. As usual, I'd like to give a big thank you to Keller Glass and his band Mobjack for our opening and closing theme music. You can hear more about him in an episode where I interviewed him. You can also check out some of the music he's working on currently at kellerglass.com. All of the rest of the music in the segments is royalty-free, attribute not required, but we do appreciate those musicians as well for helping to set the tone of the tales. If you have any comments, suggestions, ideas for a story, perhaps you know somebody who would be a great guest with a great story to tell, perhaps you go biking with Prince William, or maybe you know the only person who's cycled by a polar bear. Maybe you just shoved a roll of quarters inside your buddy's seat tube. No story is too big or too small. If it's interesting and about bicycles, it's fair game. Maybe you're a company and you have a product that you think might be a good fit for the show. For all those and any other inquiries, please contact me at bikekarmaguy at gmail.com. That's bikekarmaguy at gmail.com. You can also find out all kinds of information about us at the Bike Karma Podcast website, which is www.bikekarmapodcast.com. The Bike Karma Podcast is the intellectual property of Thomas Brown. All of the content besides the music is the intellectual property of Thomas Brown. Copyright, trademarks, and all the other rights are asserted and reserved. So I am definitely not out of stories, but I will be taking the month of February off. The next episode will be coming out in March. So enjoy your February, check out the back catalog, and the show will return again in March. I'm going to be visiting the Connecticut Historical Society. They have an exhibit called The Bicycle Game. So going to be checking that out and talking to the curator. I've got a couple phone calls lined up with people from all over the world. And I'm also planning a bunch of day trips to go cycling different places over the summer. Currently, I'm deciding whether or not to put my winter tires onto my winter bike because it's just pretty warm this year. Anyway, no matter where you are in the world right now, I hope you are enjoying yourself and getting some rides in. Till next time, keep it wheel.